You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel, who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Elazur, the son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, from Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Padazur, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, from Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pejiel, the son of Okran, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as Yahweh commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad, were forty-five thousand six hundred and fifty. Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, Every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, 
by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Issachar were fifty-four thousand four hundred. Of the people of Zebulun, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun, were fifty-seven thousand four hundred. Of the people of Joseph, namely of the people of Ephraim, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim, were forty thousand five hundred. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh, were thirty-two thousand two hundred. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin, were thirty-five thousand four hundred. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali, were fifty-three thousand four hundred. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, twelve men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel, by their father's houses, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed, were six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty. But the Levites were not listed, along with them by their ancestral tribe. For Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle, and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. Thank you.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 617 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, May 13th, 2023. That was the first chapter of Numbers. And true to its name, what was it full of? Numbers. Lots of numbers. Interesting fact about first chapter, this first chapter of Numbers and chapter 26. Chapter 26 also includes another census, and there's a difference. And the difference adds up to 1,820 fewer soldiers than the chapter one numbering. And it's important to comment on this now because I don't know if it'll be sticking in my mind by the time we get to Numbers chapter 26. I want to comment on it now, and if I mention it a second time in chapter 26, well, that's fine. But I I would rather say it twice than not at all, because this is a sticking point for some people. They will say, well, how can we trust the authenticity of the Bible? How can we trust that this is not just a whole bunch of writings from old, long-dead men, a bunch of made-up stories, cleverly devised fables, how can we trust that this is actually the inspired Word of God and therefore reliable to build our lives on when something as simple as the number of men being counted has a discrepancy or a contradiction? And that question can't be sidestepped. It shouldn't be sidestepped. It shouldn't be just waved off like, oh, no, don't ask something like that. Don't ask stupid questions. We shouldn't wave off the challenge because sometimes it is offered up in good faith where somebody just genuinely wants to understand why is there a discrepancy here. And I don't personally know the answer to that question off the top of my head. So I have to do some digging, and I would encourage you likewise to do digging. But then that's also part of the reason why on this podcast, I'm going to bring up these kinds of things, these kinds of challenges, since I think this is how you do apologetics. This is how you have a good testimony. This is how we need to be. And how are we going to be that way? How am I going to help us to be that way if I'm not myself that way? Without further ado, I'll share with you some brief snippets of commentaries from several uh, well-respected or well-renowned Bible commentators, theologians, pastors, preachers, scholars, regarding the book of Numbers. From preceptaustin.org, some commentary here, and I quote, between the last chapter of Exodus and the first chapter of Numbers, a month elapses and the book of Leviticus intervenes. The events covered in Numbers occupy a period of about 38 years. A note of caution in reading commentaries on the book of Numbers, many commentaries are very critical of this book from a number of standpoints, and they do a great disservice to the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16. Just by way of reminder, in case you don't remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, I will provide that for you here. All scripture is breathed out by God and 
profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's kind of like the other 316 that everybody is more familiar with. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, so also, 2 Timothy 3.16 is very, very important for us to understand and embrace, to mature, to grow in Christ. It's good for us to understand that God loved the world and that he sent his son, and it's good for us to know about eternal life. But If you want to have a productive life here on earth in the time that the good Lord has given you to do his purposes, to do his will, you really do need to embrace 2 Timothy 3.16 as well. But going back to the commentary, the notes you are reading receive the words of numbers as fully inspired with no errors and no need to make apologies, sections that are difficult to understand. Do not shy away from reading and studying this great book, for you will be both edified and blessed if you come to it as a little child, trusting that the author will speak to your heart. So first up here is John Phillips. The lessons of the book of Numbers are full of interest and are of a very practical nature. Leviticus deals with the believer's worship, Numbers with the believer's walk. Purity dominates Leviticus, whereas pilgrimage dominates Numbers. From POSB, Numbers, what an unappealing, uninteresting title. Numbers sound more like a math book than a spiritual journey, yet this is exactly what this great book is, one of the greatest spiritual journeys ever taken. Ray Stedman writes, now we come to the book of Numbers. In Numbers, we have dramatically set forth what is perhaps the hardest lesson a Christian has to learn to trust God instead of his own reason. This is where we struggle, isn't it? We think that what we want to do and the way we want to do it is the right way. The hardest struggle we have, even as these Israelites had, is to learn to believe that God knows what he is talking about and that what he tells us is the truth and is for our good and to operate on that basis despite what friends and others around us are telling us concerning the right way. Proverbs puts it so graphically, There is a way which seems right to a man, and its end is the way to death, Proverbs 14.12. The book of Numbers is a picture of that experience in the believer. You will recognize, of course, that it is the experience of Romans 7, where the unhappy, defeated Christian, who is his own worst enemy, is being disciplined by God because God as a father loves him. He is experiencing in the midst of his discipline the fatherly love and care of God and protection from his enemy. That is what the book of Numbers portrays. It is a picture of people who have come out of Egypt, but who have not yet reached Canaan. They had the faith to follow God out of the bondage of slavery and sin, but have not yet come into the fullness of liberty and rest in the Holy Spirit. Canaan being a picture of the spirit-filled life. From Wearsby, Someone has described Israel's wilderness wanderings as the longest funeral march in history. Numbers has an important spiritual lesson for Christians today, as explained in Hebrews 3.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.1-15. God honors faith and punishes unbelief. At the root of all of Israel's sins in the wilderness was unbelief. They did not trust God's word. Gilbrandt writes, comparing Exodus 19.1 
With Numbers 1-1, we see that Israel had encamped at Sinai for just short of a year. In this busy year, Moses, under God, had organized the nation with its laws, its tabernacle, and its worship. They were now to prepare to march on Canaan. MacArthur writes, The English title Numbers comes from the Greek, arithmoi, and Latin versions. This designation is based on the numberings that are a major focus of chapters 1 through 4. The old generation at Mount Sinai and chapter 26, the new generation on plains of Moab. The most common Hebrew title comes from the fifth word in the Hebrew text of 1-1, in the wilderness of. This name is much more descriptive of the total contents of the book, which recount the history of Israel during almost 39 years of wandering in the wilderness. The book of Numbers must be dated circa 1405 BC, since it is foundational to the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is dated to the 11th month of the 40th year after the Exodus. Ronald Allen writes, the book of Numbers, while presenting unusual problems for the modern interpreter, yields significant rewards for the patient reader. In a day marked by pop art, quick fixes, and fast foods, the book of Numbers is particularly troublesome. It simply does not appeal to the person who is unwilling to invest time and energy in the study of scripture. Often the modern reader first will be discouraged just by the name of the book. Numbers seems to be a particularly inappropriate title for a part of the revelation of God. The title seems as interesting as a book named, for example, Telephone Directory or perhaps Principles of Arithmetic. A suspicion of increasing dullness settles in long before finishing the first chapter. By the fifth chapter, the reader may have dropped out altogether Numbers is not fast food literature. Indeed, some wonder whether it is any kind of literature at all. Once a reader braves these murky waters, he or she will discover that there are four major problems to face in the book of Numbers. One, its seeming lack of coherence as a book. Two, the dizzying variety of the contents. Three, the problematic large numbers of the tribes of Israel. Four, the fascinating but confusing story of Balaam, Numbers 22 through 24. These factors combine to arrest even the interest of the most pious readers. (laughs) Finally, last but not least, at least as far as what I'm going to read for you from this selection of commentaries, Brian Bell asks, what was Numbers originally known as in the Hebrew Bible? Bemid Bar. In the wilderness, desert, in the wilderness or in the desert, I should add, one or the other, which better indicates what the book is about. It's also been called the book of journeyings, the book of murmurings, the fourth book of Moses. It's a book of transition, setting aside the old generation because of unbelief, chapters 1 through 20, then preparing the new generation to inherit the promised land chapters 21 through 26. It's a book of wanderings, for God made his people wander in the wilderness for 40 years till the old generation, 20 years and older, died off. Application. Unless by faith you enter into your spiritual inheritance in Christ, you will wander in unbelief and rob yourself of the blessings God has planned for you. Warren Wiersbe. What would God teach them and us in the wilderness? how to be wholly dependent on him for food, clothing, health, protection, and all things, so we can learn what he can be to the heart that trusts him. Why study the book of Numbers? Paul explains, 
they provide us an example and are for our instruction. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, 1 Corinthians 10.11 and Romans 15.4. So that's what we are going to get into, and we are not going to skip numbers. We're not going to do it. We're not going to skip it out because some people are bored or hypnotized by this repetitive phrasing. We're not going to skip it, and we are not going to dismiss it, and we're not going to just rush right through it. We are going to talk through what this might portend for our understanding of God's character and our understanding of where we come from and our understanding of ourselves and one another. Where do we find ourselves today? With stats used as one of the forms of lying, to quote Mark Twain, who attributed the saying to Benjamin Disraeli, although that's questionable, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. In our day, statistics are thrown around all the time, and the general public is not expected to dig into those stats and whether they are legit, whether they're accurate, whether they really prove the claim that's being made. In fact, most of the time that statistics are leveraged, I would guarantee you the expectation is you're going to trust the authority of the person presenting the statistics, and you're going to repeat those statistics uncritically. Most people are going to do that. A very, very small percentage, speaking of statistics, a very, very small percentage of people, in my experience, from my observation, just knowing the demographics of my family and friends and acquaintances and the general public, the vast majority of people are not going to go and look at the original research and the original polling method. The majority of people are just going to say, oh, wow, 94% of such and such for this, you know, support the claim that climate change is you know, man-made catastrophic and uh, an imminent threat or whatever. Oh, wow, 94. Well, we need to do something about climate change. Uh, clearly. You know, and then you you find that very, very small outlier of a person who goes and does their homework and checks the stats, checks the claim. And they're like, well, wait a second. Now we, we went out and we asked a cross-section of the people you're referring to. And they're like, no, I don't agree with that. No, that's not what I said. No, I, I might agree with this piece, but not like all of those things. And I certainly don't agree with what's being proposed on the back of that stat. But all that is to say, statistics are around us all day, every day. We hear about statistics all the time. Turn on the TV news, pick up a newspaper, pick up a lot of books, look at advertising, and you will see stats. You'll see hard numbers being thrown at you or fuzzy numbers being thrown at you. And the idea is to inflate numbers when they're going to make the intended behavior more attractive and to, in other cases, inflate numbers. If you want to scare people and create a negative association, you inflate the numbers to make what you want them to not do anymore and not think anymore and not say anymore and not believe anymore scarier. Inflate the ooga-booga numbers when you want to create negative association. Inflate the happy, happy, happy numbers when you want to create positive association. And we really just are, I think, uh, somewhat numb to 
numbers. And then we come to this in Numbers chapter one, and we're like, what is what is the practical utility? What do I need to know the numbering for here? And I'll just be completely honest with you. I don't fully know the answer to that question, except to maintain that there is an answer to that question. There must be an answer to that question. It might be that it's going to take some work. I grant, but I, for one, I am willing to put in that work of trying to ponder these things out, meditating on them. And it might be a a lifetime and it might not even be in this lifetime that we understand why these were given to us, why we were told these things. One, One observation, and I don't know that this is the point, but it's a observation to recognize is that we weren't dealing with just a handful of folks who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had lived in Egypt for 400 years of hard bondage. We're not talking about a small group, a small band. This isn't like your most recent family reunion, even if you have a big family, because the bigger families get, typically, in my opinion, the more likely it is that when the older generations get old and pass on, you're going to have fracturing with those who are younger. So in the case of my dad's family, for instance, I'll use my dad's family as an example. It's not that nobody talks with anybody anymore, but my dad was the oldest son of nine children. And when his mother passed away, my grandmother passed away here a few years ago, I recognized that that was probably the beginning of the end of us getting together in big family reunions where everybody attends. Now, if we all lived in the same area, that would be, you know, maybe one thing. But even there, what happens? What happens with families of any size? People are people and you get sibling rivalry or these cousins don't get along or so-and-so and and this guy, they had an argument years ago and they've never really gotten over it. And so they just don't like to be together. They don't like to be around each other. And you could tell that these two, uh, you know, they're still upset about some conflict with regards to the inheritance and and all kinds of things. But then you've got this pocket that gets along. They all are simpatico. And then this pocket over here, they get along and they will get together on occasion for holidays. And you get these smaller clumps of family. Not so in the case of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Egypt. And might I just suggest to you that part of what helps them to be a coalescing cohesive unit, even as they get to be in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands strong in Egypt. Part of what does that is that they are facing trials and persecutions. And so there's an odd kind of unifying effect to their uh, being oppressed by the Egyptians, being enslaved and mistreated by the Egyptians. So also, when they are out from under the Egyptian uh, tyranny, when God delivers them out, as he is trying to instruct them in the wilderness, what starts to happen? Not to say that it wasn't happening at all in Egypt, but what really is a feature of, a theme of, the interactions between the people of Israel and Moses and Aaron and, by extension, God? Repeatedly, they oscillate between obeying everything that Moses tells them from God, and on the other hand, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, griping, scheming, 
talking amongst themselves about how maybe we should just put to death these men or forget about them or start barking orders at them and appoint new leadership to go a different direction. They want to hold a, uh, <laughs> a recall vote, so to speak, on Moses and Aaron. And then later, as we'll get into, when Joshua and Caleb are the only two out of 12 spies sent in to scope out the land of Canaan, the promised land, when they're the only two to give a good report and the other 10 are saying, ah, we should turn back now. They're too strong for us in Canaan. The people of Israel want to stone them to death. So we see this feature of once that Egyptian oppression is removed and lifted, no longer do you have the cohesion. And then what happens as they face trials and God brings them through those trials? He continually points back to those trials and says, remember, 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 remember. Well, here we have something of a in-between. We have them coming out of the trials in Egypt, and they are about to come into new challenges, new conflict in Canaan. But first, God wants a census. And even just think to yourself about the effect this would have. As right now in the United States of America, May 13th, 2023, there's talk of a potential World War III with China, which we are not in a strong position to go and fight. I'm sorry to say, but it's the Democrats' fault. It is the radical left's fault, and it's also a whole lot of, well, moderate Republicans' fault. But we're not in a strong position, and there's increasingly talk of, what if we do get into a situation where we've got to have selective service activated and another draft? And in recent years, with transgenderism on the rise, with radical egalitarianism rotting on the vine, withering on the vine, but not really letting go just yet of the popular imagination, there's increasingly talk of women needing to, in the name of equality, sign up for the draft. And so there's the talk in our time of men and women being drafted if there's a major war with China. And what does that do to the mentality of your fellow Americans and you yourself if all of a sudden tomorrow you hear, all right, guys, we've got to have a draft. We need to take account of every young man and woman in our day, which is just insanity, and it needs to not, it needs to not happen. That is a losing proposition for many reasons, which we'll get into in another episode. But what is the effect on Israel here? What would be the effect on us as Americans? But what is the effect on Israel here? It's probably a very sobering effect for God to say, take a census. And he's keeping something of a cohesion on a tribal level, right? So there's all this complaining in these days about whenever there's a political conflict or culture war issue that comes up. So you can shut somebody down by saying, oh, I think you're being too tribal. Now, you know what? Tribes are a good thing, actually, in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with tribes. Otherwise, God wouldn't be saying to take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. It's okay to be clannish and to be tribal 
but your tribe needs to be about the right things. Your clan needs to be about the right things. You're still under God in that case. But notice also, these tribes are not of equal size. I mean, you know, that might be no big deal and it might be whatever, but we've got 46,000, 59,000, 45,000, 74,000, 54, 57, 32, 40, 35, 62, 41, and 55. And all of that adds up to 603,000. Why such a big difference? Well, I'll tell you. If this tribe, this clan, tends to have more children, or that one over there is riskier, they take more chances, that makes a big difference in how many men you have to go and fight. And of course, people don't typically think along these lines as a way of planning out when they're going to get married, what they're going to do for a living, when they'll have children, how many children they'll have, when they'll call that good. People don't typically think in my, again, in my experience, along the lines of, well, I need to have 10 strapping sons so that we're ready to go to war in 10 generations. Like we just don't, we don't think like that in the majority of cases. Now I maybe think like that a little bit, I'll be honest with you, but most people don't. And yet, whether that's where our head is at, give it 10 generations. And the difference between just having one or two kids, get your boy and your girl, and that being repeated generation after generation, the difference between just have your one or two kids and having, like my wife and I are expecting our ninth, over a few hundred years, the difference is pretty amazing. It's a pretty big difference. It adds up to some big numbers that we, in our day, with much lower fertility rates and much lower birth rates, we are disbelieving of. We are somewhat taken aback at. But part of that is because for 50-some years, abortion and contraceptive have been eliminating tens of millions of American children, which also should be eye-opening when we think about the possibility that not just those 60 million could have been part of American society, but also whatever children those 60 million would have had and whatever grandchildren those 60 million would have had, how big could this country be if those children had not been aborted over the last 50 years? We don't know. We just don't know. That's just abortion stats. How many pregnancies were prevented in the first place due to contraceptives? How differently have we organized ourselves socially, culturally, economically, politically, at home and abroad as a result of those children not being part of the equation? How much more robust would our economy be? How much stronger would we be from the standpoint of our political institutions if there weren't such a divide between the conservative folks and the progressive folks? I'll even go as far as to say that a lot of the trouble we have with progressivism and liberalism and leftism is the result of the cultural rot due to people not having children. And what I mean by that is there is something about 
having gotten married and having children that will make you more conservative just by virtue of the fact that in order to make ends meet, in order to provide, in order to instruct and teach and discipline and raise all of these little people, you have to get used to counting costs. You've got to get used to saying the word no, for instance. And what are so many people not accustomed to hearing the word no? And why might that be? It might be because of birth control and abortion, making a whole lot of only children, a whole lot of households where there's one or two kids. One to two is the average, and plenty of households where there just aren't any children at all because these people decided, we just don't want to have kids. And so I, I mention these things, I bring these things up because it actually is instructive that one, God has blessed Israel in Egypt, even in the midst of trials and oppression and slavery and bondage. God has blessed the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like he promised he would. You know, one child in Abraham's old age then had other children, who then had other children. And now here we are, 600,000 600,000 men who can fight in Israel between Egypt and Canaan, God has kept his word. He is in the process of keeping his word here in numbers and demonstrating and showing off. And so we shouldn't see that as a boring thing, not when we patiently consider not so long ago in the first book of Moses when Sarah laughed at the promise that she and Abram would have a child in their old age, would have a son, that God would make of Abraham's descendants a great nation, a mighty nation. But moving on, Holly Ash over at Not The Bee has highlighted, as of yesterday, my wife Lauren's birthday, a clip shared to Twitter by Libs of TikTok from a recent episode of Transformers Earthspark. Without comment, without introduction, besides that, I'm going to play the clip and I have some thoughts. Here's cut one. My pronouns are they, them. Thanks. I'm Sam. I'm she, they, but you already know that. (laughs) Wow, what an amazing city. I'm sorry for how I reacted. It's just, sometimes the world can be a scary place. It's hard to know who is dangerous or not. Hmm, that's true, though disappointing. Hey, it's okay. I know I'm safe when I'm with my friends or other non-binary people. Non-binary? People who aren't female or male. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have assumed. I always knew my pronouns felt right, but... What a wonderful word for a wonderful experience. Okay. And that's propaganda. That is propaganda. And uh, watch out. Watch out for what you are letting your kids watch and what you're watching. Uh, Whether your kids are kids or whether your kids are adults, 
whether you're an adult or you're a kid, watch out what you're watching and what is being subtly, not so subtly, increasingly not subtly slipped into our thinking patterns, what's being normalized, what we're being told is inevitable, even in some show that you wouldn't think has anything whatsoever to do. I mean, it is Transformers after all. So it was only a matter of time before the Transformers more than meets the eye turned to transgenderism and how people can be like Transformers too. See, this is not just a TV show. This is propaganda. This is indoctrination. This is your child, our nation's children being taught that non-binary people uh, are safe and binary people, people who identify as male, female, who insist on male and female being the two categories as created by God uh, are not safe. So conservatives are not safe. We are the Decepticons. And I say, no, the Decepticons are the ones who are trying to hack your brain and make you mutilate yourself so that you won't reproduce. They hate people and they actually hate children. And that's, I'm convinced increasingly why they want the kids to be trans and homosexual because they hate children and they want these children to not reproduce. But you know, it's frowned on in our modern society where the emphasis is so much on freedom. It's frowned upon to just go rounding up all of the children and to take them to the equivalent of your local humane society and have them spayed and neutered. That's frowned on. But if you can talk the children into it, well, then we won't have the overpopulation problem. See? And then you can control who all reproduces, who all breeds, and who doesn't. Because these people, the left, sees man as just another animal. And as an animal that they need to manage. And they don't see themselves at the very top as being animals. They see themselves as being rather godlike. Which we'll get into when we talk at the end of this episode about Joel Kotkin's book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. But moving on. A federal lawsuit is reported on by Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee. Not for no reason. Not, not for no reason do the Not The Bee folks write with pseudonyms, by the way. That tells you who really is uh, the status quo. Who is the man? Who has the power right now? It's not the conservatives. It's not we who have the institutional power and authority, despite what the left will claim. Down with the system. You guys are the system, actually. So if you really meant it, I might say, yes, down with your system. But anyway. Federal lawsuit, Ohio school district is punishing kids for misgendering trans students inside their own homes. According to a federal lawsuit filed by a group of parents, Parents Defending Education, PDE, a school district in Columbus, Ohio, which was an hour from where Lauren and I uh, met and spent most of our teenage years. Columbus, Ohio, I'm very familiar with the area If students misgender transgender students by referring to them by their actual biological sex, the school is reportedly punishing them. Timcast News, this would be Tim Pool, uh, his organization. Timcast News has the story, quote, the lawsuit alleges that 
district policies violate students' First Amendment rights by chilling students' speech rights, compelling students to affirm beliefs about sex and gender that are contrary to their own deeply held beliefs, and violating parents' 14th Amendment rights through the district's efforts to restrict speech off school grounds and in families' homes. Here's another quote. This one, a statement from PDE. The district's other actions send a clear message to students that only one view about gender identity is acceptable. It has pushed parents out of critical gender identity decisions of their children through its use of gender identity support plans for students whose biological gender does not align with their gender identity, which the district uses without the consent of their parents, PDE said in a statement. OLSD has also issued transgender guidelines that instruct teachers and other district officials to hide the student's gender identity and preferred pronouns from the student's parents unless the minor student gives permission otherwise. End quote. A tweet from Aran McIntyre is highlighted here. The government will use civil rights law to take your kids. Period. It's already starting to happen in certain liberal stronghold states. And Ohio is not the next place you would expect this to crop up. But Ohio is very purple. Extremely moderate. And conservatives conservatives water down their opinions and their beliefs and their convictions and they moderate themselves so as to get along with their democrat neighbors family friends coworkers in the state of Ohio Ohio is ripe for this kind of a thing other purple states are ripe for this kind of a thing red states all the states are ripe for this kind of a thing Get your kids out. And this is why we homeschool. Your kids can get a better education academically at home. Your kids can get a better social experience if you pull them out and homeschool them and ensure that your church is going to be a place where there are healthy social relationships forming. That's where our efforts need to be concentrated. And yes, our efforts to engage politically need to go beyond just showing up at school board meetings, running for school board, because this is being pushed from state legislatures and teachers unions and the federal government. We have got to have an all of the above approach because the left has been hard at work and we also need to reclaim what our kids are watching and what they're reading. You think, oh, I'm going to pull my kid out, but I'm going to Send them over to the library because that's a safe place. And no, it's not because the library is going to try and trans your kids too. And you say, well, I'm going to pull my kid out, but I'm going to have them watching some TV because I just need a rest. Ah, Yep. But the TV shows, the cartoons and the animated shows that you're going to have your kids watch are also going to be trying to trans your kids. So we need to be comprehensive about this. We really do. It's not far. We're, We're not far off from these radical leftists trying to take all of the conservatives' kids and re-educate them, Soviet style. Paul Saka over at The Blaze. Video, investigation of Texas high school softball team after catcher walloped opposing players in their heads with throws. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. I'm not going to play the audio. You really have to see it to believe it and to fully appreciate what's going on here. But I will read for you a excerpt here. 
The Texas University Interscholastic League is investigating a high school softball team after its catcher was seen on video hitting opposing players in their heads with wild throws. There is debate about whether the catcher intentionally hit the batters or not. Cisco High School squared off against McKamey High School in the area championship softball series over the weekend. The catcher for McKamey High School was accused of intentionally throwing the ball at the heads of two batters from Cisco High School. Following a pitch, the McKamey catcher turned and seemed to throw the ball toward third base. However, the catcher hurled the ball and smashed the ball into the heads of the batters. Another Cisco batter was walloped in the head when the catcher threw the ball toward the first baseline. There were two other incidents of throwing at batters in the first round playoff game between McKamey and Coleman High School. The catcher hit batter Lauren McKeehan twice in the head in two different at-bats. Coleman today reported, quote, Then an odd event took place that no one was really quite ready for. McKeon watched the ball go across the plate, making the count one to two. She stepped out of the batter's box, as she often does, to look at coach Corey Avon at third base, and the McKamey catcher threw the ball supposedly toward the third baseman, hitting McKeon in the back of the head. Lauren was called out for interference. The outlet added, unfortunately, out of habit, McKeon stepped out of the batter's box to look at Coach Avon again after the first strike receiving the ball to her head again from the McKamey catcher since Galbraith was on third. No one was ejected after both incidences. Interference can be called on batters for impeding the catcher's ability to throw the ball to an infielder. If the team is called out for interference, the team is penalized with an out. Now, let's just be very clear here. Even in the reporting, even in the investigation, even in the commenting on this, there is a very obvious ambition to explain this away. Watch the video for yourself. I look at this video or the two videos, not to be also posted this. I look at the videos here and I say, that looks really intentional. That looks like the catcher is furious and is throwing a tantrum. And the parents in the stands and everybody really, you can tell is like, whoa, 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 whoa. And here's the problem. If our mindset is you have to assume that everybody's good people and also you have to affirm feelings, then what do you do with a catcher whose feelings are violent, out of control, enraged, and We have now conditioned everybody, including the umpires, including the coaches, including the parents, to not ever challenge, correct, rebuke feelings. The catcher's having an emotional moment. And so now we're going to have an emotional moment too, but then we're going to all calm down and we're going to say, ah, this is all just a big misunderstanding. No, it's not. And the catcher should have been ejected from the game and probably barred from playing in any more games for the season. This is a really, really serious thing. But this is the beginnings of a larger chaos that is going to inflict the United States of America. And we have to recognize it for what it is. We have to have the initiative when it comes to church events, school events, community events, kids at the local park just playing around, supposedly, we have to be able to take the initiative as parents. But the initiative as parents to be able to say, hey, you stop it right now. That's not okay. And here are the consequences if you won't stop. The underlying 
core beliefs that are necessary for that are being systematically stripped from our public consciousness and from our private convictions. And those who say, no, that's not okay, are the ones who are being systematically identified and a cultural revolution, Maoist style, is unfolding before our eyes. And this is not a cause here. This is an effect. This is a symptom of that problem. And again, this relates to the book that we'll be talking about at the end of this episode. This is a symptom of the neo-feudalism, the particular kind of neo-feudalism, as Joel Kotkin writes, which is being implemented before our eyes, under our feet and over our heads and all around us. Not to be staff highlighted a video. Watch Ted Cruz absolutely rip into a reporter at the border on illegal immigration. I'll play for you cut two here. Ted Cruz blows up on reporter who tries blaming him, not Joe Biden, for the massive increase of illegal crossings at the southern border. Thank you to Colin Rugg for tweeting this out. Thank you to Not To Be Staff for highlighting the tweet. Without further ado, here is cut two. Take a listen. Let, 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 me, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. What rate of illegal immigration did we have in 2020? Do you know anything? I asked you a question. How long have you been in office? Do you know anything? How long have you been in office? I've been in office 11 years yeah, now. And this has been okay. the calendar in multiple administrations. Except your, okay, Trump you don't get to argue with me. You asked your question. You, you asked your question. You don't get, you want to hold a press conference, you can do it over there. You, have you want to hold a press conference, you can do it over there. How are you? Right, so, so hold on. I'm going to answer his question. The talking point of the Democrats, which this media reporter happily parrots, is, gosh, the problem can't be fixed. There's one little problem with that. It is an utter and complete lie. In 2020, the last year of the Trump presidency, we had the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. You ask, what have I done? I've championed the men and women of Border Patrol. I've championed securing the border. I've championed Remain in Mexico. And we turned this problem around and solved it. And we went from Joe Biden inherited the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. And the first day in office, he made political decisions to cause this problem. And you should be ashamed of yourself because you're a reporter and you're not reporting facts. You're telling lies. Joe Biden made a political decision. And that's correct. And I agree. Those are facts. There's a lot of emotion there, but it's time for the emotion to not be only permissible if you're on the left at the same time at the same time as the left fuels all of their pushes with the strongest possible emotions and they bully conservatives and they try to blame conservatives for everything and they lie they lie like it's breathing conservatives are told if they ever get upset like ted cruz just got upset with the reporter there if they ever get upset well, they've lost. Yet at a certain point, it's time to be upset. It's time to be angry. Slow to anger does not mean never get angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry is what James tells us everyone should be. But slow to angry doesn't mean never get angry. At a certain point, it's time to be angry at the fraud, at the sabotage of the left as pertains to this country of ours, scale it up and their ambitions are global, certainly national, but scale it all the way down to the level of your home, your church, your community. They are totalitarians. 
They want nothing short of absolute total control, and they won't stop unless we stop them or unless God himself intervenes. They're going to get total control, and then what will they do with it? They're well on their way. Are we going to stop them? Is God going to stop them? Will we at least have our consciences to keep us good company if we have tried to stop them, if we have tried to warn those who are being led away to the slaughter? I hope so. I hope so. But see, how this will be portrayed and how this is always portrayed by the left in media and in academia and in politics and in broader society, how this is always presented by the left and by moderates who are easily swayed is this is just white people. This is white people afraid of being replaced by illegal immigrants and therefore any opposition to our open borders policies is racism, right? It's just a whole bunch of racist white people doing what they do best, being racists. Here is cut three for you where black Americans, black leaders in Chicago are upset about this as well. Here's cut three. Take a listen. Politically, having over 500 people in our community would completely wipe out any interest we have. Are you aware that there are immigrant advocates at state houses all over this country who are who are advocating for non-citizen voting in local elections? What if that happened here? That would change the mindset of what we as a black community need to thrive here in Chicago. That's a concern of ours. This is much bigger than the mayor of Chicago or Chicago Police Department. This is an effort to destroy our neighborhoods and silence our voices even further. And cut. Thank you to Citizen Free Press for tweeting out this video and to Harris Rigby at Not The Bee for embedding it in this post at Not The Bee for all of us who are still not on Twitter because Elon Musk buying Twitter didn't solve all the world's problems. Shocker. (laughs) Shocking. But here you have black Chicagoans saying what conservatives across this country have been saying for decades. Hey, wait a second. This is part of a larger scheme by the left to water down our vote. And they're bribing people to come to the country and vote for them and vote for the left in exchange for access to the economic opportunity here. And is that news to black Americans in Chicago? Is that news to urban Americans in big cities that declared themselves sanctuary cities for illegal immigration? Is that news to them that conservatives have been saying for decades, hey, this is not sustainable. This is not cool. This is a this is a scheme by the left, the political left, to win elections by bringing in people, bribing people from other parts of the world to come here and vote for them. And what if affordable housing is already a problem? What if affordable utilities and food and healthcare and what if just basic safety is already a problem and now you further destabilize these communities all over the country? How are people supposed to feel? How are, I don't care, Black, white, Hispanic, Asian American, I don't care what color you are. If you're an American, if you're the citizen of any country, this has been done in Europe as well. 
if you're the citizen of any country, how are you supposed to feel when you start thinking, hey, I, there are problems that the left is not addressing. They are not getting it done. Their solutions don't work. And then rather than the left in power saying, you know, you're right, we should go back to the drawing board. Let's, let's listen to what you have to say. Rather than doing that, they just import people that they bribe and they stay in power and they do it even harder. It, they do even more of it and even harder what they've been doing that was creating so many problems in the first place. And then what do they do? Well, yeah, the left, the left will ignore their native constituents and then they'll say, well, let's bring more people here to further destabilize. And then they'll say, ah, all these problems are related to the temporary disruption due to people who aren't from here. Ah, but how did the people who aren't from here get here in such quantities? And didn't we have some major problems on the front end that were the reason why you wanted to import people who weren't from here in the first place? I, I, think, I think that was the case, if I remember. But the media won't report it like that. The media will vilify and demonize and scapegoat conservatives who say, hey, I remember, I remember <laughs> why this all started in the first place. I, I remember how we tried to stop this and we, we warned about it. The media is not our friend. The corporate media is controlled opposition. Moving on. A Minneapolis teen was ruled incompetent to stand trial after shooting someone in the head a few months later, he shot another person in the head. Well, maybe he was just trying to throw to third base. That maybe. If it wasn't 2023, and if we didn't know all about the progressive and equitable DAs and policing in this country, I would have found this story impossible to believe. Edward Teach writes at Not The Bee. But it is 2023, and sadly, this story is no longer shocking at all. An unarmed 16-year-old boy was ruled incompetent to stand trial after shooting a man in the head. He also had 12 misdemeanors, all of which were dismissed by the judge. The young man was turned back over to his mother. What about his father? Where's his father? Where's his dad? Let me just take a wild guess here that the welfare state policies of LBJ to Barack Obama and now Joe Biden, the welfare state policies are in the mix here. Generations of his maternal ancestors, the matriarchs of the family going back generations, didn't need to get married, so they didn't get married. And feminism told their mothers and their grandmothers, just be a strong, independent woman. You don't need no man. And now here's the 16-year-old, no father mentioned, shooting people in the head. And then we have district attorneys who are allowed to sneak in like the fox guarding the hen house, backed by George Soros, who is for the open society, which is communism by any other name. It's as rotten, allowed to sneak in because the decent folk have convinced themselves it's not that bad. Or once it is that bad, well, there's nothing that can be done about it now. This young man became a gap case. And I quote, falling through a loophole in Minnesota law that lets juvenile suspects charged with crimes go free without required mental health treatment or supervision. There are roughly 300 kids each year found incompetent to stand trial, according to state court data. Since he was 16, a juvenile, the state 
law didn't require that he receive any punishment or treatment after he was found mentally incompetent due to a low IQ score. So it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for 300 teens each year who can commit apparently any heinous crime, literally shooting somebody in the head. Until recently, this was the law in Minnesota for adults, too, until last year when the state legislature passed a law removing the loophole for adults. But minors are still able to quite literally get away with murder. Since the law requires cases to be suspended, even when they involve violent crimes, judges can't order juveniles to be held in detention or released under law enforcement supervision. Judges' hands are also tied in these cases because they have no authority to order children to get treatment to restore them to competence. Even if they did have that power, there are no competency restoration programs in Minnesota tailored to juveniles, in one case a mentally ill teen who was charged with two armed robberies, found incompetent to stand trial for those crimes, and then let go to his grandmother instead of secure treatment. And I think that's not a complete sentence. I read it. I read it exactly as it was written, but that's not a complete sentence. But here's the thing. When God tells Moses to say to the people of Israel, here is the law in Leviticus, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When Jesus talks about that in the New Testament, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, He's not abolishing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The context is very clearly personal insults. If someone slaps you on the one cheek, they're insulting you. They're disrespecting you. They're not committing murder. But even in the New Testament, what Paul writes in Romans 13 is not a contradiction of what Jesus says about turning the other cheek. It's actually very much in line with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that the governing authority bears the sword for something and is a minister of God with authority from God to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. He does not bear the sword for nothing, Paul writes. And what happens when Christians say, all I know is do not judge lest you be judged, so I'm not going to judge, and they ignore what Paul says about, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? That is ignored in favor of staying out of all of this. But then the consequence is that there is no justice and that the left controls the narrative on there being no justice. See, I even just said there's no justice and you immediately, I'll bet, thought to yourself, no justice, no peace, like the chant from the Black Lives Matter protests. But see, it's the Black Lives Matter protests that promoted lawlessness on the basis of skin color. And they were inherently racist and anarchic and intended to agitate for communism. Black Lives Matter was a very openly communistic group that even many Christians were deceived by and endorsed and gave money to and gave their time to and put up images on their social media and flags on their lawns saying they supported Stickers on their vehicles and on their water bottles and on their cubicle walls saying that they support it. Black Lives Matter. Yep, I agree with that. Wait a second. You're being a sheep and you are being silent as others are being led to the slaughter. At least your countrymen, but also you yourself. And this is what we get. Let me just be very frank. Justice requires capital punishment for murder. And there is no exception if somebody bombs an IQ test, nor is there an exception if somebody has an exceptionally high IQ test. It's irrelevant if they committed the crime 
then they need to face the consequences. And we should love mercy, but Micah 6.8 says, do justice. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And that's not what is happening. And it is in no small part the fault of those who are greedy for unjust gain, who are ambitious, who are vain, who fear man, who are passive in the face of lies perpetrated, which result in real men, women, and children being murdered. But let's go back to the media for a moment, because the media is who you would expect to find these things out from if you are the typical American, average American, even though we don't trust the media. We nevertheless seem to not be able to come to meaningful opinions and conclusions without the media's input. NBC News correspondent Tom Costello worried on Tuesday that no one would be able to police former Fox News host Tucker Carlson if his show aired on Twitter, Virginia Cruda reports over at the Daily Wire. I'll play this cut for you. Here's cut four with exactly that commentary. Take a listen. Okay. Well, listen, Twitter was already under fire from misinformation, disinformation, all-out lies, anti-Semitism, racism, before Elon Musk took over, and now it's gotten kind of crazy, right? Seemingly unmoored, uh, if you will. Will anybody be able to police what Carlson says... Mm. Or is this the point? It's just a free-for-all. I think this is the point. It is a free-for-all. It's what Elon Musk wants to provide. This move by Tucker may cement the idea of Twitter as a right-wing website. (laughs) Well, I can't be too right-wing because I am still banned for tweeting at Chris Jolly Hale back in March of last year, March 26th. With all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. I tweeted that to a failed Democrat candidate, supposedly pro-life Democrat candidate from Tennessee, and I am still banned from Twitter, despite multiple appeals. So I would say it's not a free-for-all. Actually, it's not free for me. I have to rely on other people to highlight tweets in order to even know what's being tweeted on Twitter. But what <laughs> what nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. They're liars and they are lying. They are doing what they do. They're liars who lie. And if they had some stats for you, they would present those and then you would believe them uncritically. If you're the majority of people, you say, oh, oh interesting. Wow. Yeah, those stats are really concerning. You know, and it's not true. It's, it's not true what they're saying. They're being manipulative. They're being deceitful. They're using unequal weights and measures. For years, big tech has been very consciously of the left, promoting the left's ideas, promoting the left's policies, promoting the left's standard of good and evil, true and false, and censoring conservatives and trying to depress conservatives suppress conservatives, drive conservatives from the public square and from office. And Elon Musk, even just saying the same rules are going to apply to everybody, drives the social justice warriors and the leftists bonkers. It drives them crazy. But then crazy is not the word for it because these are not stupid people and they're not mentally ill. They're evil. These are evil people. 
who should repent because they're committing fraud and they are setting brother against brother and they are facilitating and giving cover for those who murder, those who steal, those who cheat. Woe to them. I feel sorry for them on the day of judgment. Woe to them. They should repent. They should come to Jesus and they should be cleansed of all their unrighteousness. The power of the tongue is life or death, scripture says. These people use their ability to speak to promote death and woe to them. But let's talk briefly about Elon Musk. Joel Abbott over at Not The Beat just yesterday put up a post. Elon hasn't led us astray thus far. So let's talk about the new Twitter CEO and pray he's right. Elon Musk tweeted out, I'm excited to welcome Linda Yaccarino as the new CEO of Twitter. At Linda Yak, we'll focus primarily on business operations while I focus on product design and new technology. Looking forward to working with Linda to transform this platform into X, the everything app. This came after another tweet he put out, excited to announce that I've hired a new CEO for X slash Twitter. She will be starting in about six weeks. My role will transition to being exec chair and CTO overseeing product software and sysops, system operations, I think. This gal, Linda Yaccarino, is the executive chair for the WEF, for the World Economic Forum. She also has been chairman advertising and partnerships for NBC Universal. Uh, at the WEF, she was chairman, chairwoman really, of the Task Force on Future of Work. I will play one clip of her highlighted by Five Times August on Twitter with the caption, seriously, at Elon Musk and a face palm. In her own words, here she is, the new CEO, um, upcoming incoming CEO of X slash Twitter. Hey everybody, Linda Yaccarino here. Class of 1980, we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about masking up or packing up. I promise you, we're doing good so far. Just keep your distance, get your hands washed often, get tested often, and wear your mask. That'll get us closer and closer to normal days. We are resilient. We are tough. Keep doing it. And we'll be back at Beaver Stadium before you know it. Mask up or pack up. We're almost there. We are. Ah, <clears throat> so there's that, right? So there's that. Has she had a change of heart? Time will tell. Here is Linda Yaccarino in a 2020 interview highlighted by I meme, therefore I am. Here's cut five can talk about, you know, things that that my company is doing to accelerate, right? To accelerate what we were doing already, but realizing that it wasn't enough. So what immediately started happening was that uh, under the leadership of Brian Roberts and Jeff Schell, uh, Comcast set up a fund to the value of $100 million dollars to fight social justice and equality and, and obviously supporting many, many important groups. 
but it really made a very public statement that we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're not going anywhere. And it inspired action across every corner of our company, because what it also did was made leadership of our company accountable. We have this $100 million. What are you mm -hmm. doing? What's the update? Where are you with that? But it also gave a lot of us opportunity to say, here's our update. How can you help? What would you, what do you think we should be doing, right? So I think it's very exciting. And there's been a lot of exciting, uh, um, exciting steps of progress at our company. Because for a lot of companies, we needed to take a moment and actually open our aperture. I'll use maybe a TV or a film reference to say, okay, we thought we were doing enough. Clearly we weren't. So then we had to make sure we were taking the right steps to direct funds towards the right organizations, to make a public statement of accountability like Cesar Conde, our new chairman of news, who made a public statement that was confronting editorial bias and saying, my division, our news division, the biggest news division in the country is going to be 50% women and 50% people of color. Ambitious yes. goals? Yes, no doubt about it. But a statement, a stake in the ground with accountability. And I'm happy to say there's many, many other uh, uh, examples of progress at, at our company, divisions like mine, working with Ad Color and T. Howard Foundation. So there's so many examples of us trying to listen, learn, but do. And, 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 and I'll say the do, I'll say where, where our goal is really to be intentional about uh, when we go back and give those report outs, that we're accountable and we're accountable uh, and we can report progress and that we're proud uh, of what we're doing. So I, I think it's an exciting time that's come out of such adversity for so many people. Now, do keep in mind, <clears throat> that is her, in her own words, from October of 2020. Lots can happen in two years and some change, two and a half years. But remember the tweet from not even six months ago, from Earth by Elon Musk. The woke mind virus is either defeated or nothing else matters. Does he still hold to that? Is this part of that view of where we're at socially, economically, politically, technologically? Well, here is a chat, cut six, of Linda Yaccarino and Elon Musk from April 18th of this year. See what you think. I thought X was coming out. Um, he was, I had some uh, extra questions for him. I think, uh, yeah, he, had, he changed his mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Elon. It is such a treat and a special opportunity. Welcome to Possible. And while Greg was right. Hey, everyone. Okay, let's have a round of applause. Um, well, Greg was right. You really need no introduction. But in many ways today is your introduction to the advertising community, right? Hello, I think hello. that's a round of applause. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's widely known that in the morning you run SpaceX, in the well, afternoon 
you head to Tesla, and in the evening, it's Twitter time. And many of you in this room know me, and you know I pride myself on my work ethic, but buddy, I met my match. Yeah. So we're here today to actually talk about your night job. Uh, great, sounds good. <laughs> but with Twitter, you've switched roles a little bit. You've, you know, your other companies, you move from inventor now to reinventor. And when you're inventing something, it's all new. It's a surprise. We don't know what to expect. To reinventor, you challenge legacy. You challenge habits. With Twitter, many of us in this room, we might even go to bed with it in our pocket on the night table. You challenge rituals. And every marketing executive in this room knows the difficulty of a new formula and the challenge of the delicate balance of a rebrand. And now that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to make Twitter fun and interesting and informative. You know, the optimization for Twitter is uh, maximize the unregretted user time. So, um, so it's, it's not like total number of users or anything. It's just uh, total user minutes unregretted. And we, we actually hit an all-time high um, uh, just yesterday. So uh, the, it's going well. It's, it's, it's entertaining. <laughs> So, I think um, entertaining is one you know, way some people in the room describe Twitter today. It is. Train wrecks, arguably, are entertaining. <laughs> train wrecks happen <laughs> sometime. They happen sometime if you're dedicated. Like a train wreck. Yeah. Um, You've got to be dedicated to fixing them. But I think it's important to start with your vision of Twitter 2.0. Yeah. You yourself wrote, I would like to die knowing that humanity has a bright future. It's actually been quite apparent in all your other businesses, from the early days of PayPal, to Tesla, to SpaceX, to maybe you contemplating a new AI company. Yeah. But how does the better humanity for the future fit into your Twitter 2.0 vision? Um, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, with the, the, the goal with, with, with Tesla is to advance sustainable energy. Uh, with SpaceX, uh, we've got Starlink, which is providing internet to the least served in the world, um, and also uh, hopefully getting humanity to Mars and back to the moon, um, so we have an exciting future. I mean, it's important to bear in mind, like some of people say, like, why waste any money on space? Like, don't we have enough problems on Earth? But you know, the thing is that, like, everyone needs a reason to be inspired. People need a reason to wake up in the morning. It can't just be about solving problems. They have to be, th have to be things that really get you in the heart. I think I just killed the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, uh, and, and going to the moon last century inspired the whole world. Yeah. And, and uh, hopefully going to Mars can do the same thing. Um, so then, it's a great question. Why take some time away from that uh, for, for Twitter? And Mike, you know, what, what I think is, is, is essentially in order for civilization to advance, uh, we've got to have um, freedom of speech. We've got to have a digital, yeah. So, thank you. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's a bigger deal than you'd think. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you don't know what you're missing until you don't have it. And in a lot of places, people don't have it. And um, so it's important to bear in mind that the nature of free speech is 
the, the, the acid test for it is, are people you don't like allowed to say things that you don't like? Otherwise, it's not free. It can't, be, it can't be just the things that, it can't be just things that you like, because eventually, somebody's not going to like what you say, and they're going to shut you up. And that's, that, that's the essence of free speech, and that's why it's the First Amendment in this country. And if we lose that, I think we lose the bedrock of democracy. So the bedrock of democracy, I would imagine, is important to everyone in this room. And you talk about yeah. the importance of freedom of speech. Yesterday, you posted a new policy that was titled freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. That yeah. got my attention. Yes. Tell us about your new policy. Okay, I'll stop right there. That's nearly six minutes worth of audio from the interview that is uh, actually closer to 43 minutes in its entirety. But I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode to the post over at the Not To Be write-up on Linda Yaccarino. And you can watch the full interview if you want to. I'm sure the rest of it is informative and thought-provoking. But before we move on to this book that I just read, Joel Kotkin's The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, consider with me Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. If you continue on to the next verse, verse 4, the psalmist continues. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Verse 8, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Verse 9, Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Verse 10, Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. Now that said, let's talk about Joel Kotkin's book. The summary over at Goodreads for The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class, reads as follows. Following a remarkable epoch of greater dispersion of wealth and opportunity, we are inexorably returning towards a more feudal era marked by greater concentration of wealth and property, reduced upward mobility, demographic stagnation, and increased dogmatism. If the last 70 years saw a massive expansion of the middle class, not only in America but in much of the developed world, today that class is declining and a new, more hierarchical society is emerging. The new class structure resembles that of medieval times. At the apex of the new order are two classes, a reborn clerical elite, the clerisy, which dominates the upper part of the professional ranks, universities, media, and culture, and a new aristocracy led by tech oligarchs with unprecedented wealth and growing control of information. These two classes correspond to the old French first and second estates. Below these two classes lies what was once called the third estate, this includes the yeomanry, which is made up largely of small business people, minor property owners, skilled workers, and private sector 
oriented professionals. Ascendant, for much of modern history, this class is in decline, while those below them, the new serfs, grow in numbers, a vast, expanding, property-less population. The trends are mounting, but we can still reverse them if people understand what is actually occurring and have the capability to oppose them. The subtitle here being a warning to the global middle class, I'm not as concerned about, really, the middle class. My concern would be for people. Is this good for anybody when people are oppressed or when people are allowed to be oppressive? Is it good for anybody? I don't want to think about this in terms of class. I want to think about this in terms of people made in God's image. Now, Biblically, we have categories for the rich and for the poor. We have categories for the native and the sojourner. We have those categories biblically. Those are legitimate ways to classify people. And interestingly enough, we don't have middle categories biblically. We have either you're from here and you're established or you're a traveler you're passing through, or you're new to the area. Maybe you plan to be here for the rest of your days, but you've come from somewhere else and we're going to call you a sojourner with us. Or if we are (laughs) the ones who are not native to an area, we might think of ourselves as strangers in a strange land, or we might think of ourselves as exiles. These are biblical categories that it's okay for us to embrace and to distinguish based on. And more to the point, We have to reach for these categories, I would argue, if we're going to know how much to trust in a book like The Coming of Neo-Feudalism and what use to make of it. It's also important that we understand the categories of rich and poor for the same reasons. God, throughout his word, Old Testament and New Testament, he is consistent because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character doesn't change. He's not a man that he should lie. And he doesn't need us to like what he's saying. So he's telling us, don't be biased against the rich man because he's rich. Don't be biased in favor of the poor man because he's poor. Don't be biased against the poor man just because you think you can exploit him. Don't be biased in favor of the rich man just because you want to curry favor with him. And that doesn't change just because... Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in obedience to the Father, was crucified, died, was buried, and raised again on the third day. The moral law, God's righteous standard, does not change just because we have grace in Christ Jesus. God's character hasn't changed. When he tells us to be holy, for I am holy, we need to understand that partiality is always a temptation, and it's a competing temptation. The only one we're supposed to be partial towards, really truly, is God when it comes to justice. Now, that said, you might have responsibilities, and your responsibilities might sometimes make for difficult situations. And so very clearly, the husband has a responsibility to his wife. He doesn't have a responsibility like that to every woman in the world. The wife has a responsibility to her husband. She doesn't have a responsibility like that to every man in the world. A father has a responsibility to his children. He might have also something of a responsibility to everyone's children if he sees them in distress or in trouble to speak up for them, to protect them, 
to look out for them, to visit widows and orphans in their need, like James talks about in the New Testament, James, half-brother of Jesus. But a husband and a father, first and foremost, has a responsibility to his wife and to his children. A man who does not provide for the needs of his household is worse than an unbeliever, we read in the New Testament. Paul writes in Thessalonians, aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, so that you may be blameless. You want to work with your hands, have a quiet life, and we know that in the New Testament. That's not an Old Testament idea, only that we would pay attention to the material. What are you doing when you're working with your hands? You're working with physical matter. You're working with objects that God has put into creation or he has put the building blocks of into creation, which then we maybe manufacture and finish. And that's part of what we do with our hands. But like Joel Kotkin points out, increasingly automation has taken a lot of what formerly were blue collar, work with your hands, buy the sweat of your brow, earn your daily bread type work. And that that part of our economy is not like it was decades ago. Increasingly, machines do the work 24 7, 365, and they don't complain. They don't get sick and they don't want to take a vacation, but they do break down sometimes and they do stop working sometimes and they do need operators to double check them for now. But increasingly, we're seeing automation paired with artificial intelligence. And so, knowledge workers, people who still work with their hands after a fashion, like myself, automate processes and feed automated data points into artificial intelligence, into computers. And then something known as machine learning helps the AI to get better and better at predictive maintenance and predictive controls on processes, sending out an alert so that somebody who needs to work on that machine and repair it or maintain it or inspect it or service it or adjust it will be sent in a in an efficient manner shall we say to do their piece while these disruptions are taking place in the economy the nature of work is changing before our eyes a lot of jobs are being replaced with automation and ai will replace still more jobs administrative jobs executive assistant jobs secretary jobs data entry jobs, analyst jobs, journalism jobs, media content and creation jobs. Increasingly, AI is going to eliminate those jobs. But at the same time, more jobs are expected to open up for the people who maintain these machines. And so then in effect, as the economy is shifting, so also our culture is going to shift and is in the process of shifting And the people who own the automation, who pay the bills to buy the instrumentation and to pay the technicians and the programmers and the integrators like myself, the people who own these machines and these software suites and these systems, they are extraordinarily wealthy and it's all automated. So they don't actually have to work with their hands. They don't actually have to do anything except for make decisions and tell people, here's how it's going to be. And at the same time that this is happening 
with regards to manufacturing and production and transportation. It's also the case that advances in transportation and communications software and hardware have created the capacity to travel all over the world, to be anywhere very shortly, and if we're talking digitally, uh, nearly instantaneously, to be anywhere in the world, to communicate, to observe, to monitor, to report, to decide, yay, nay, up, down, yes, no, now, later, fast, slow. And because that capacity is tied to the wealth to be able to activate it, whether to make decisions or to appear or to communicate, what we're seeing play out is the rise of, as Joel Kotkin points out, global elites in recent decades who have more in common with one another than they do the citizens of any particular country that they have property in or they own interest in a business in. These global elites have much more in common with one another than they do with anybody from their hometown or their home country. And so what do they do? They jump on planes, they go to conferences, they travel to their vacation spots, and they talk and they make business deals as wealthy men have always made business deals and talked. And they decide very much along the lines of that selection from G.K. Chesterton's essay on eugenics, they decide, I'll trade you so many whales for so many elephant tusks. And then they turn right around and they talk to another gentleman, very finely dressed, and they say, I'll trade you these elephant tusks for etc. And if they play this game very well, they get very, very wealthy. And meanwhile, there are two other classes of people underneath them. There are those who can work with their hands, on the one hand, to actually make sure that the elephant's tusks go from point A to point B and to make sure that the whales end up in the correct port. There are those people, whether the process is automated and you're just putting hands on the instrumentation and on the keys and the mouse to configure these things and test these things, or whether you are actually physically loading, that decides whether you are part of the global middle class, as it's being referred to here, or whether you are essentially a serf. And the serf will live on welfare increasingly to supplement what would have been something of an income previously. And so you have a very large and growing larger every day class of people whose services are no longer required, who very similar to as it has been, there's no new thing under the sun, as it has been for all of human history, they are very easy to run roughshod over. They don't get a good education. They don't get access to a beautiful home. They don't go on vacations. They eat junk food and they watch garbage TV and movies and listen to garbage music because they've just embraced that they are regarded as something like human garbage. And rather than fight it, why not just enjoy the vanity of vanities and the chasing after the wind? Because the same event happens to the rich man as happens to the poor man. Meanwhile, the people at the very, very top are increasingly capable of silencing any criticism of their business interests or their dealings, and they can just pack up and move somewhere else on the map if they want to get 
what they think is justice, which is really just the desired outcome that's most profitable to them and maintaining their status quo. And all the while, right, all the while, all the while that this is true now, it's always been true. It just looked different. Because there is, as Solomon very wisely states, there is no new thing under the sun. There's nothing that you can pick up and say, ah, see, this is new. Not really. Even if it is a new form of a thing, the thing itself, transportation, for instance, is not new. Communication is not new. Deadly weapons are not new as a category of things. Housing is not new. So the way people relate to all of the above, for the reasons that people relate to all of the above, are not new. They are a factor of what is in our nature, what is in our hearts, what is in our minds. And that's why God's word is not outdated or obsolete. There is no obsolescence with God's word because these are timeless truths about who God is and always will be. God has certainly not changed. And human nature has not changed. But we have increasingly the global elites who are like feudal lords. And sometimes you get a good feudal lord, and sometimes you get a really, really awful one. And then most are somewhere in between. And it depends on the day and the hour and how their stock is performing, or whether they're in the headlines for a happy thing or for something that might jeopardize their interests. And so I think what we have to realize in looking at the coming of neo-feudalism, reading a book like this, is that a lot of what Joel Kotkin talks about is not news to us. Not if we've been paying attention. Not if we've been following current events. Not if we've been looking around us. Not if we've been comparing notes with each other. It's not news to us. But actually, interestingly, I feel like the coming of neo-feudalism is something of the other side of the coin to Rod Dreher's book or books, Live Not By Lies for one, and The Benedict Option for another. Both of those books argue that Christians should understand the parallels between this moment in history and the collapse of the Roman Empire. We had a Pax Romana roughly two millennia ago, and in this day, we have a Pax Americana that has lasted for decades. Even though there have been wars, for sure, there's been a tremendous amount of political stability, peace, prosperity, economic growth, because America was the dominant superpower in the world and could, by and large, exert its will in a unifying way and say, this is what's going to happen here and that's what's going to happen over there. And in some sense, that's the problem because just like with Rome, so also with America, the elites who rule over that and scrape the cream off the top consistently who always do in all places, in all countries, in all nations, in all periods of history, the elites who scrape the cream off the top at a certain point forget where the cream came from. And then they get hungry and they want something new for supper tonight. And they kill the dairy cow. They kill the goose that laid the golden egg and then collapse and then fractionation. And all of a sudden, what was the Roman Empire is now all of these smaller kingdoms ruled by the strongest or the wisest or the most most ruthless, the most clever, the most conniving, but really actually, in all cases, those princes who God has allowed to 
get into a position of authority. And underneath those princes of those various kingdoms, whether they're good princes or they're bad princes, whether it depends on the day type princes, in all of the above, it's God, according to the psalmist in Psalm 146, it's God who sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous. And Rod Dreher is on to something when he says Christians need to be focused on building strong communities of believers, strong families and homes in which the word of God is taught and believed and lived by, where the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, where the wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord in all things, where the children obey and honor their parents and the father instructs his children, where the older women in the larger community of faith teach the younger women how to love their husbands and children well. The older men in sobriety teach the younger men how to be reverent, how to be godly, how to provide for and protect their families. And I believe if the world stands, it might take a few centuries for us to emerge from this new dark ages, which is ironic because we think right now, well, how could we have a dark ages when there's so much advancement in technology? And I say, well, take a look at this push to combat climate change. Take a look at the censorship online. Take a look at the push to transgender children and to turn our children into sexual deviants. Look at those pushes. Look at the scheming of the left to take children from their parents. Look at the scheming of the global elites to collapse national identity and to make all of the world's people into global citizens so that they can, in a technocratic, oligarchic way, continue to scrape the cream off the top in perpetuity throughout their generations. Look at all of that. And now consider with me, if you will, the run-up to World War I, when a lot of these same reasons for optimism were fueling unbridled optimism across Europe and here in the U.S., unbridled optimism. Technology is just going to make life better and better and better and better and better. And then World War I happens, and it's horrific. And what does the horror potentially right around the corner look like? And are we ready for it? Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or are we putting our trust in princes, in a son of man? Now, what I'm not saying, and I've heard some Christians reference this passage to say, I'm not going to get involved in talk about, pay any attention to politics because we don't put our trust in princes. And I say, well, that's not the point of what the psalmist is getting at here. That's not what the psalmist is getting at here. When he says, I don't put my trust in princes and you shouldn't either, he's not saying you just totally ignore like an ostrich with your head in the ground that there are princes in your midst. No, no, but actually, actually, (laughs) try this on for size. If the plans of the prince perish, according to the psalmist, on the very day that he dies, and he's not taking any of that wealth with him, unless we resurrect the Viking habit of burning the dead warlord's bride and horses and treasure on a ship with him to send all the above into Valhalla, unless we resurrect what the Egyptians used to do, burying slaves and valuables from the household 
in the tomb with the Pharaoh or the very well-off priest, unless we resurrect that, all of these very wealthy, powerful people, when they die, and they will die, it's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. When they die, everything they've built up, for better or worse, will be handed off to somebody else. And that somebody else might be noble, or they might be incompetent, in which case they'll have a power struggle, in which case large empires will get broken up into smaller empires, smaller petty kingdoms, fiefdoms, or the one who comes next will be wise and magnanimous and just and fair. And just because you don't put your trust in princes, because they're finite, for better or worse, they're finite, you also shouldn't just ignore as irrelevant the governing authorities. For one, because we're told to submit to them, so long as what they're telling us is not at odds with what God has told us to do, we are supposed to submit to them and be respectful and honor them, honor whoever is owed honor, because we honor God, and God has instituted this person's authority for better or worse, however they use it, God will work these things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that. And yet, if we're not paying any attention whatsoever, we're not going to take seriously what's coming, and we won't be like the wise man in Proverbs who hides himself. The wise see trouble coming and hide themselves. The the wicked won't be forever. The righteous will endure. The wicked will blow away like so much chaff. The wise man sees trouble coming and hides himself. The fool carries on and suffers for it and will keep on suffering for it. And again, my interest is not, first and foremost, in talking about classes of people. I don't like the whole class warfare thing. You can have a person who has wealth and power and authority who does what is good with it. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. You had some kings who followed after the Lord. And you had other kings who were very wicked and did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. But even there on the latter part, that is to say, God sees and he knows and a man reaps what he sows. But that's good if we are sowing to righteousness. That's good if we are aspiring to live a quiet life working with our hands. So let me just give you a little bit of advice. As somebody who works in automation, I won't say everybody should go into automation, but I will say, Pay attention to how the economy is changing and advise your children and people who look to you for guidance to find ways that they will be able to live quiet lives working with their hands, minding their own affairs in the economy that we're transitioning to. That would be my advice. Increasingly, if you have to speak, you will be pressured to speak and flatter the zeitgeist and flatter the global elites. And they will push the envelope and see how much they can get everyone to affirm. And even if you can't help it, your skill set and what God has called you to requires that you speak and you're thrown into a fiery furnace. What you should prepare yourself to say is, O King, live forever. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. That is to say, he's able to deliver us from you because he's stronger than you are. And we believe that. And we don't forget that. That's our hope. That's our security. That's what gives us peace. That's what allows us to sleep at night and not stress out. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't deliver us from you, we still won't bow down. We need to prepare ourselves to say those kinds of things, but we also should recognize that trouble is coming and it's here. More of it's on the way, but trouble is here. And it would be wise to hide ourselves from the trouble that is brewing 
by learning trades, learning ways to work with our hands that are not going to just go away if this or that process is automated or fed into some AI software suite. We need to be wise and figure out what working with our hands, living a quiet life, minding our own affairs, walking blamelessly before outsiders looks like in the coming decades or centuries for our offspring. And I'll say too, I think another thing we really would be wise to do is assume that the world is going to continue on until God brings it to a close. When God calls it and says, that's it, that's all, the end, now comes the judgment. Until God says that, we keep on assuming, presuming, operating on the principle that God has here a purpose for us, he has good works for us to walk in, and that there is a joy set before us that we would want to have complete. There's a hope and there's a future that God has for us in Christ, not just in eternity, but also here, now, to build up the church, to build up our families, increase in the land and do not decrease. And I'm running out of time here. I really should go. It being a Saturday, my kids have a piano recital later today. But let me just say, as a teaser for what I'd like to talk about in our next episode, I want to address the presumption that the Old Testament is irrelevant. And unless we find everything we would point to in the Old Testament repeated verbatim in the New Testament, we can ignore it. I want to address that in our next episode because it's very important when we talk about what translates from Jeremiah 29 as to the character of God, that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some want to say that that's the Old Testament. We're not Israel. This isn't the Old Testament period. This is the New Testament. That's not relevant. And those who say such things need to think about if the world stands another thousand years, which it might. If the world stands another thousand years and God has plans and purposes for us, for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, so on and so forth, how then should we live? But like I said, I got to run. This book was interesting, good food for thought, not my favorite, but you might benefit from it if you wanted to build on what Rod Dreher is talking about in more of an ecclesiological, theological way in the Benedict Option and Live Not by Lies. If you want to build on the case he makes and build out an understanding of what that means for a good theology of work moving forward, check out The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class by Joel Kotkin. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.